James chapter 1, starting at verse 12 and going through verse 18. These are the words of God. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lusts. And when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. I love, as we start this, to note that uh, James's end here in verse 18, or his, the last verse that we read, um, communicates Romans 1.16 in a powerful way. It communicates the same truth as all of the Word of God, which is that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. How does James communicate that same thing? He says, in the exercise of his will, that is God's will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. God has brought us forth. He has saved us. He has redeemed us by the word. That's how this works, right? All things were created in heaven and earth by the word of God's mouth, and all things will be redeemed, all things will be saved, uh, if we will trust in him, will be redeemed and will be saved because of that powerful word. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Over the past couple of weeks, we've been talking about trial, and we're going to dig down into trial a little bit better today, but I'm going to try to explain these verses actually in light of the parable of the sower. I was uh, able to do this this week on the live feed, on the Thursday live feed, but uh, I really think that the message is important enough for everybody to be able to hear, and if you did listen to the live feed on Thursday, you'll get maybe a little bit more information about this. While I'm doing it, while I'm walking through, which will be Matthew 13, while I'm walking through that, I'll be interjecting points about this section in James chapter 1, the, specifically verses 12 through 18. So you can turn back to uh, Matthew chapter 13, or you can turn your Bibles to Matthew 13 as I walk through this. Um, one of the struggles that I was feeling this week, or one of the struggles that I was dealing with this week, is uh, the complexity of language in the Bible. There are people who subscribe to an idea that says, if we, if we have to work for any understanding or any meaning in the Bible, that it's too complicated and it's not what God wanted. And that is hilarious, <laughs> because the Bible itself tells us to rightly divide it. Uh, the scripture is a, uh, a document, an inspired document that was written in an ancient language, two ancient languages, and we are trying to interpret it 2,000 years later. There is complexity in understanding the Word of God. There always will be. So we're in need of people who are theologians and scholars. We're in, we're in need of people who spend their life studying language. We need that kind of thing. 
And when we go through all of these understandings of things, especially language, we, we wrestle, uh, scholars wrestle specifically, not we as in I am one, but um, the church wrestles with, are we interpreting the word properly? And so in one instance here in James chapter 1, verses 12 through 18, in, in this instance, the word trial, the word test, and the word temptation are all the same Greek word. And so it becomes a really big challenge. And so next week, what I'm going to do is I'm going I'm to dig in and we're just going to go to school. So I hope you'll come with a, a lot of willingness to have your wheels turning. But we're going to go to school next week because the challenge in these terms is found when you hear that God does not tempt, and yet we know that God tests. And it's the same word. <laughs> so it becomes a really big challenge on how we get to the interpretation or the English interpretation of certain words. And I'll have a lot of uh, meaning and explanation for you in next week's message. I govern myself by a principle that says if I am not convinced of a thing in my heart, I cannot get up here with a good conscience and teach it. And so I've wrestled with it all week and I'm like, well, I'm just not ready. This thing needs to spend more time in the oven. <laughs> and so, so I'm, I'm waiting, right? And so uh, it's, a, it's a really important message. But what I want to do today is I, I do want to talk to you about the testing that God gives to us. Because even though it's the same word, God will not tempt you, but God will test you. And we know it beyond a shadow of a doubt because it's all over the pages of Scripture. In Genesis chapter 22, we read the story of Abraham and Isaac. And it says specifically in Genesis 22 verse 1, that God tested Abraham. It doesn't say the devil wanted to test Abraham. It doesn't say life circumstance wanted to test Abraham. It doesn't say the people around Abraham wanted to test him. It said that God tested Abraham. And the test that he gave to Abraham was a very big test. Take your boy up the hill and sacrifice him. This sounds fun. I mean, some days I want to do that with my kids, but God's not asking me, right? right? So, but he asks him to do this. And Abraham passes the test. All of my daughters went, what? Anyway, it was amazing. They're looking at me just scared to death. And here's the beauty. Becca is on my side. She was in the, she was in the kitchen the other day, and she had gotten out the knife sharpener and mama's paring knife. She's on the floor just going, I'm sharpening your knife for you, Mama. I'm like, well, we need that for sacrifice later. So anyway, so, um, but, so God tests Abraham, and he legitimately tests him. And Abraham passes this test, and it's a fascinating thing, because just like what James will tell us about faith later, it's always a combination of faith and work. It's always a combination of trust God and put that trust into action. So he climbs the hill with his son and he lays him on the altar and he tells his son before, and this is strange because scholars, uh, Jewish tradition shows that uh, Isaac was probably somewhere around 37 years old. 37 years old? <laughs> I'm 41, that wasn't too many years ago, ain't nobody duping me to get on an altar, okay? But Isaac went, Abraham went, lays him on the altar, and this is a fun piece of geeky information. It says in the scripture that the angel of the Lord halted him and said this, he said, he said I know now that you will not withhold your son from 
me. He doesn't say withhold your son from God. It's fascinating because what you'll find in Scripture is that when you read about the angel of the Lord, more times than not, it is God. The angel of the Lord is God. You did not withhold your son from me. And it's just a fascinating, geeky thing. I don't know if that means anything to you, but it'll be fun for you to study it. So testing happens. God tested Abraham. Abraham passes the test. In the Hebrew language, of course, the word is not the same. But we know that it was a test, and we know that it was the same word that James uses because in Hebrews chapter 11, I think it's verse 22, says that, uh, that God uh, tested Abraham and that he was found faithful in his test. So it's the same word for test and for temptation. And so this is really challenging, but we'll, we'll get to that. The idea that God tests us, though, cannot be negotiated. God tests us. And God tests us for good things. He actually wants our good. And his tests are actually proving whether or not we believe what we say we believe. Amen? Jonathan Daniels. Amen? Right? So he is testing that. So when we go back to James and we hear this, we hear, blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. We then follow that up by a contrast. Uh, James tells us what God gives and what God does not give. What God does not give is that God does not give temptation. Let no one say that he is tempted by God. I am being tempted, when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted by what? By us. <laughs> by our own sinful desires, by our own lusts, by our own trajectory. And that's what happens there, okay? But what does God give? Verse 17 says it very clearly. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. God gives tests because they're good. Those tests produce in us what? Endurance. Endurance produces in us what? Maturity. And maturity helps us to lack nothing for the Christian life. That's all good, and therefore that is one more reason why God tests us, okay? So with this idea of a test, I shared it last week that we're often, we're often getting in our mind a test of like biblical proportions, right? We're, we're thinking God's going to ask us to walk on water. We're, we're thinking God's going to tell us to go build a boat because a global float's coming or something crazy like this. But most days the test is, do you trust me for everything in your life? How many of you would agree with that? That God tests you and says, do you trust me for everything in your life? Do you trust me for your money? Do you trust me for your clothing? Do you trust me with this and with that? That's what God is doing most of the time. And in Matthew 13, we start to see this. The reason why we need to embrace the test of God is because it's coming. And when we face it, the, the, the options are what they always are. We trust God and we walk with him or we abandon God and we run away. Did you know that? Those are the options that are always before us. Trust God and walk with him or abandon God and run away. So we need to embrace that tests come from God, that tests produce good things, endurance, maturity, and lacking nothing, and that God is going to send them because he loves us. It's for our good. Testing is just like discipline. 
How many of you love discipline when it comes? Right? Yeah, exactly. Okay. And that's not you just not wanting to raise your hands. I know, right? None of us like discipline. My four daughters never like discipline. We say, okay, meet us in the bathroom, meet us in the bedroom. That's the place where we correct our children. And so meet us there. And every time the face goes, oh, no. And we do the same thing with God. And he sees our face quite plainly, <laughs> right? God says, Nathan, what are you? Oh, no. What's happening? Same thing with tests. They're not always well received in the moment, but just like discipline, they're good, aren't they? It's good because it's shaping us and molding us. So now we're going to jump into Matthew 13, and I'm going to tie all of this crazy stuff in together uh, while I explain this parable of the sower maybe in a bigger way than you're used to. So starting at verse 1, Matthew 13, verse 1 says this. That day Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea, and large crowds gathered to him. So he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd was standing on the beach. Sounds like a good way to do church on a beach. Okay, verse 3. And he spoke many things to them in parables, saying... Now here's the... He had spoken other parables. You guys know that. Many things in parables, but here is one specific. Behold, the sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate them up. Others fell on the rocky places where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. Others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. The others and others fell on the good soil and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Okay, first of all, we have the parable, and most people, and what you're going to find in just a second, is even the disciples were scratching their head. And these are the people who were with ears to hear. So that begs the question, what on earth does Jesus mean by he who has ears to hear? How many of you have ever read that and wondered that question? He who has ears to hear? Okay, first of all, let's do a, a little experiment interpretation. Uh, is Jesus being literal right now? No, because everybody in that earshot, pun intended, uh, well, had ears. So he, he automatically is speaking figuratively. Which means to go even further figuratively is not a stretch at all. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. What it means to have ears to hear is not some mystical transformation that God does for some people and not for others. In the Bible, it is those who humble themselves in the sight of the Lord. And you will find this a thousand places. It's the same for those who have ears to hear and those who have eyes to see. It is a, it is a phrase that communicates those who will humble themselves and listen, those who will humble themselves and look to King Jesus and him alone, they will have and find the truth. That's what the scripture is telling you. Now, I'll prove this as we move forward, but it's a really important idea to know he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Humble uh, approach to God. Verse 10, and the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? Jesus answered them, 
This is where it gets a little hard for people because these words are really interesting. He says, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. Now what we do is we stop there and we say, we don't know why it's been granted, but we'll make a ton of assumptions. That guy was chosen, the other guy was not. That doesn't say that at all. As a matter of fact, it's going to say the exact opposite in just a second. To you, it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them, it has not been granted. For whoever has, to him more shall be given. What is has referring to? What do you have to have there? Well, look to the previous verse again. To you, it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them, it has not. For Uh, For whoever has been granted humility to hear the mysteries of God, you're going to be given more. It's going to be unbelievable. This is a very different translation than many modern people think because it's not a fiscal uh, instruction. It's not what Jordan Peterson would say about it if you know him. It's not anything like that. If you have been granted the mysteries, that is you're humble enough to hear them, you will be given more mysteries. If you are proud and you are shut down, what you have will be taken from you. That's scary, church. That's scary. So he goes on. For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and he will have in abundance. But whoever does not have... Even what he has shall be taken from him. Remember, he is talking to Jews here. Verse 13, Therefore, I speak to them in parables, because while seeing, they do not see. Can they see? Yeah, he says, while they see, they don't see. So this is a disposition of the heart that says, I can see the words on the page, I just don't have a clue what it means. I'm not giving myself to its understanding. How many of you have done that in your Bible study? You're like, I read the page. It got no clue, okay? Now, you are not one who does not have eyes to see at that moment. If you pridefully reject any instruction, now you've entered that place. Do you understand what I'm saying? You've gotten to the place where you say, I don't know, I'm just going to do it my way. So he says, because while seeing, they do not see. And while hearing, they do not hear. Nor do they, and you should underline this in your Bible anyway, nor do they understand. This is going to help in the interpretation of the parable in just a second. Nor do they understand. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, now remember the Psalm 119, 160 principle. The whole of God's word is true. So Jesus pulls back to Isaiah here and look at what he says. He says, you will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. First of all, the hearing is linked with understanding, not just words, okay? It's linked to understanding and they refuse to understand. Verse 15, for the heart of this people has become dull, now, this is, a hard, uh, this is a hard subject to broach because people who espouse this view, I love dearly. But what has happened is we've been presented in the church with a false dichotomy. I'll explain it in a second. A false choice between two opposite things. There are people in the church that believe that we have been given over to a depraved mind. That should be all of us, by the way, (laughs) right? Because Romans expressly says it. We've been given over to a depraved mind. We chose to rebel against God, and God said, cool, have what you want. Isn't that true? 
okay? There are those on one side that say, no, we're not depraved at all. We're perfectly fine people. We're even born innocent and just something goes wrong. No, 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 okay? And then there's this strange addition to the Bible that happens. The Bible says we were given over to depravity. The strange addition is a thing called total depravity. Where'd you get it? Where'd you get it? Because it's not in the Bible. You see, total depravity extends to this level that says even your will can't choose God. Even your eyes can't see. Even your ears can't hear. You're blind and you're deaf. See, we've expanded these definitions absurdly. Just as we saw with hearing, it has to do with uh, pride. The same thing happens with death. Did you all know that we're dead in our trespasses and sins? Does that dead mean that you can't actually acknowledge that God preaches the gospel to you or sends somebody to preach the gospel? No, it does not mean that. Because as dead people, we're all going to work every day too. We're all going to make all kinds of other decisions, but somehow dead means dead with Jesus. No, it doesn't mean that. So what we have is depravity, then we have total depravity, missing the mark, then we have, we're not depraved at all, we're perfectly fine. These are a false dichotomy, and the truth is that we are sinners saved by grace, as much as that statement drives me crazy, right? We are sinners saved by grace. Now we are God's righteous people. I love this truth, okay? Here is the important piece about this. The important piece about the lack of total depravity is that we are able to make decisions. Look at what it says again. It says, for their heart, the heart of this people had become dull. How can you become dull if you're totally depraved? You can't become dull if you're already the worst you can be. Because that's not what the Bible teaches. Okay, You can be depraved. But it has nothing to do with the totality. These people became even more dull. And look at what it says next. This, is, this sounds like it contradicts what Jesus just said. With their ears, they scarcely hear. It didn't say they never hear, because they can hear, and you can too. Listen, when, God, when the gospel is preached to you and you reject it, who's to blame? You are. <laughs> you are. Because your, your ears work fine. I mean, mine are a little big, but they work fine, right? Your ears work fine. You have to make sure that you are responsible. So he's quoting Isaiah, mind you, and he says, The heart of this people has become dull. With their ears they scarcely hear, with, uh, and they have closed their eyes. Well, if you're totally depraved, you already came with closed eyes. You can't close your eyes further. No, you can because that's not true. Otherwise, they would see and their eyes with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart and return and look at what God's will is in this verse. And I would heal them. What is God's disposition towards those who will humble themselves to hear, to see, and understand? To heal them. You see, this is the context, again, of the rest of Scripture when it says, He bore our infirmities and our sicknesses. It is not your cancer. He has borne your sin, and He has wiped it clean. There are going to be sicknesses and diseases in this life. God has told us to call on the name of the Lord. There is a thing called healing. It doesn't always happen. I wish it did. I really do. But... God has said that if we will call on him, 
he will heal us, won't he? I would heal them. This is the express will of God, and you don't get to change it. God's want to is to heal you. I love that. God's want to is to heal you of that sin and that brokenness. Now, verse 16. But blessed are, you, blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. So he's talking to the disciples again, right? The people who understand parables, right? The people who are different than the other people, right? They're different because they've humbled themselves. Watch what happens next. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see. There were people who were humbly seeking this, but it wasn't time yet. And did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. But here I am, King Jesus, preaching to you. Verse 18, hear then the parable of the sower. I'm Peter, and I go, I get it already, Jesus. You told me I'm one of the guys. I'm one of the end crowd. I get it already. They didn't get it. There are many parables that Jesus says something, and the disciples go, what the heck are you talking about? And God goes, okay, sit down. (laughs) Let me explain it one more time to you. Why is it that he's explaining it to them? They don't have eyes to see and ears to hear. They're out. It's not what the Bible teaches. That's why, right? Why Jesus goes ahead and fills them in on these mysteries is because they humbled themselves to hear. They humbled themselves to see. That is what the Bible teaches. So listen to the explanation of the parable, and we'll pull this into all the trials that we face in life. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not, say it with me, church, understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. Now, where does understanding come? Well, we found that in Isaiah's words. For the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears they scarcely hear. And they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart and return. The first issue here is an issue of understanding. I told you this last week. I want to restate it. The devil is is incapable of stealing what what God has given. If it is not understood or if it is rejected in some fashion... You better mark my words, he's after it. He's going to confuse you. He's going to steal it. He's the birds in the previous part of the parable. He's trying to move this away from you. But here is what needs to change for you to not be path soil. What needs to change is you to gain understanding. How many of you know the whole book of Proverbs is about you gaining understanding? Because that's a will that you have and a pursuit that you can do. And so you go, I need understanding. Help, 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 Lord. And guess what else? And this is fun because I love doing this. Every time I get the chance, I love doing this. God says that he gave gifts to the church for this very purpose. Pastors and teachers, you're stuck with me. It's awesome. Yeah, I mean, you could probably find another one, but it's a, you know, you're stuck with me right now. So we'll go with it, right? So the idea is we've got to gain understanding. I have to gain understanding. That's why I need people who lead me and people who teach me and people who guide me. We all do. There's nobody that's uh, beyond that, right? So 
When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it. Well, does that mean intellect, Nathan? Is that about, is that about smarts? God only saves the smart people, right? Come on, guys. Right, just like ears to hear is a figurative idea, understanding here is not an intelligence issue. It is a person who is not, again, humbling themselves to embrace these truths and to walk them out, to understand it by course of practice or action or, or just learning, okay? So if you refuse it, if you just push that away, well, what's going to happen? Well, the devil doesn't want you to be healed. Who does want you to be healed? God does. So the devil is going to try to steal, kill, and destroy. That's his, that's his aim right there, right? So verse 19, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away that, what, his, what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom seed was sown by the roadside. One of the big trials we face in life is an understanding trial. I push people all the time, please read your Bible, please study your Bible, please be diligent as a student of God, uh, showing thyself approved, the scripture says, please do that. And people are like, I just don't have time, I just don't have time, I just don't have time. And then they wonder why, 20 years down the road, they don't have faith anymore. Guys, it's really important for us to seek to understand. And we do that with this crazy instrument called our heart, wherever that is in the biblical idea, right? We're understanding with our heart. Verse 20, the one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. I shared on the podcast that this was my childhood growing up. They had these altar calls pretty much every Sunday and Everybody rededicated their life. They, they all got saved again every Sunday, right? Everybody ran. I wasn't, it wasn't even a Baptist church. This is a non-denominational Pentecostal church, right? And so they ran back up and got either baptized one way or the other, right? And so it's always rededication. I saw people get baptized five times through my time in growing up in the church. You know it doesn't work that way, right? If God has washed you clean, you are clean, right? Re putting you on spin cycle? It's not helping, right? You're just dumb and need help, okay? So, so it, does, it doesn't work that way, but many people receive with gladness the Word of God. They receive with gladness, but what happens right after that? Well, that's the tricky part, verse 21. Yet he has no firm root in himself. He had understanding or he'd be path soil, right? He had understanding, he received it with joy, so he understood enough to receive it with joy, yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary, and when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. This is why trial is important to understand, and that it comes from God, and that he is producing in us endurance, and endurance is producing in us maturity, and maturity provides us the ability to lack nothing so we can fight the good fight. If not, what we're doing, if we reject trial, if we reject that God tests us, what we're doing is saying, God, I don't want to stay rooted. I want to be rocky soil. This is good. It's not good. It's not good at all. This is, again, why James says to receive trial, to receive this, this testing of our faith with joy because of what it produces, not because it's happy, not because it's fun. 
Discipline isn't. Trial isn't. But they produce something that is of great joy. And guess what God gives again, according to James chapter 1, verse 12 through 18. He gives that which is good and perfect. He gives every good and pleasing gift. I love this truth. So God is the giver of these things. Testing, trial, discipline, all of that is a part of God's plan. So verse 22, And the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word, and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. Now the focus here is that whatever happens here actually prevents fruit. How many of you know we're supposed to bear fruit in keeping with repentance? We're all supposed to bear fruit in keeping with repentance, not just the pastor. <laughs> right? We all have to do this. We're all giving ourselves to God, and we're all trying to look more like King Jesus every day. Okay, so there are two things that he draws out. I would believe that there are more. I don't think that Jesus was trying to give an exhaustive list. But most of the time, we zero in on the deceitfulness of wealth. How many of you know that the love of money is the root of all evil? And not money is the root of all evil, right? Money is not the root of all evil. It's the love of it. It's you worshiping it. It's you giving yourself to that, okay? So we all know this because Jesus expands on it later and says you can't serve two masters. Either you'll serve God or you'll serve money. Pick, okay? So, so we know that. But there's another one on the thorny soil, and I think it's pressing for today's world. And the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word and the worry of the world choke the word. And the worry of the world, please, please participate with me. How many of you look at the state of our world and you have worry? Raise your hand. Okay. I'm not going to point the finger at you because my hand's raised as well. But what I am saying is be careful. Be careful. Because the worries of the world lead us to focusing on them more than focusing on Jesus. And before too long, all of a sudden, a lot of stuff's been choked out of our life. We make way too much out of politics, not saying be silent. We make way too much out of issues in our world. I'm not saying be silent. But I am telling you, that line's in there for a reason. And if you care more, this will just irritate somebody, so I might as well throw out my irritation now. If you care more about what your children will receive in an America, next generation, than in an eternal kingdom, you're wrong. And you have a problem. Because they can inherit the whole world, and they might forfeit their soul. Because you're not paying attention. Because what you care so much about will burn at some point. It's going to fade. Is it a good country? You better bet your bottom dollar it is. Do I want to live anywhere else? No, I want to visit some places, but no, I don't want to live anywhere else. I love where I live. I love the nation that I have. But I'm afraid that many in the church today uh, just harp on the deceitfulness of wealth peace but the problem that i've seen a lot happening lately is the worry of the world the worry of the world and that is an expansive idea trust me but it most definitely includes our obsession with certain political issues in today's day um i'll say this one more thing to irritate somebody it's fun these things enter my mind and i 
Well, I can't stop. So anyway, um, I'm afraid that more Christians in America have proclaimed the gospel of America than they ever have the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm afraid that more Americans talk about their patriotism than they talk about their faithfulness. And this is, please hear me, this is as gentle as I can get it. This is missing the mark drastically. I have no idea what we're doing. If I asked you the question, when's the last time you preached the gospel to someone? And I asked you the question, when's the last time you had a political discussion about the America going down the tubes or something? And your answer is, I can't remember the last time I preached the gospel and the political conversation was just this morning on the way to church. You're the problem. And you have a problem. This is not good. This is not good. We are so not busy with the work of the kingdom that the world is actually being run over by the politics that we're so concerned about. And we've forgotten that we've, we failed to see we've gotten the cart before the horse. If we will preach the gospel and Jesus will transform human hearts, I'm telling you the world will change. But if you try to change the world and then you'll slip in Jesus someday, trust me, it never works. Trust me, it never works. It just does not work. Okay. Off my soapbox, dismounting. One more thing. No, I'm just teasing completely. Verse 23. I love the stairs I'm getting because I can actually feel them on the top of my head. It's amazing. Verse 23. And the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil. You think God here says, well, there's just some good soil out there. No, that can't be the case. And so if you believe in total depravity, all of a sudden this becomes a contradiction and Jesus is actually declaring something stupid. He says, there, well, there's some good out there. No, 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 no. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What makes someone good? You'll see. It's just the opposite of everything you've just read. And the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word because he has ears to hear, right? He's humbled himself. He's listening. He has ears to hear the word and understands it, right? He's not going to be past soil. The devil's not going to fool him with a $3 bill. He understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth a crop, some 100-fold, some 60, and some 30. You see, Jesus came to save the world, the whole thing. He wants that none should perish, but that all come to everlasting life. And what he did was he provided a gospel. He provided the word of truth himself to be proclaimed in the world, to woo the world back to him if we will simply humble ourselves. Now, Some look at that and say, well, that's a work, right? Humbling yourself is a work. Uh, having faith in Jesus, that's a work. This is again absurd. And here's why it's absurd. Because if you were a drowning victim and somebody threw you a life preserver, I love this analogy, it's old, but if you were a drowning victim and somebody threw you a life preserver and you grabbed hold of it, did you save yourself? You didn't save yourself. 
Because guess what happened? Guess what would happen if the life preserver was withheld from you? You'd sink like you already were. Because you can't swim. <laughs> You're drowning. You're going to die. So somebody extends mercy to you, and your response is, I trust that that will save me. That's it. That's what faith is. That's it. I just grab the life preserver. I've not worked for anything. I've not earned anything. Same thing is true for humbling ourselves in the sight of the Lord. When God says, you all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, you've fallen short of my glory, says the Lord, repent and believe in my son. You repent and you believe and your life changes forever. It's different. You are different. You didn't earn your salvation, but you humbled yourself because what did you do? You humbled yourself. You had eyes to see, ears to hear, understanding, and what's that last piece there, guys? You bore fruit. You bore fruit in keeping your repentance, in, in keeping with repentance. And guess what the rest of our life is supposed to look like? Fruit bearing. Fruit bearing. So let's go back to James now. Let's go back to James. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. How important is it that God tries us and tests us? It's very important because what does it produce? It produces endurance, which produces what? Maturity, which produces what? Which allows us to not lack anything in life. And those who endure to the end, those who will humble themselves, those who will listen and hear and understand, those who will do that, we get the crown of life. Does that mean we have to bear fruit? We will. We will bear fruit. Guys, trial is an important thing, and I think what we do is we try to, I think we just try to avoid it at all costs. I think we try to avoid discipline at all costs, and we just lie about our sin too. But like, we, we're just avoiding a lot of things. Okay, this is a, the reason that popped into my head is because my daughters do this all the time. Kate came out of the pantry the other day. You guys love these stories for some reason. They're taxing on me, but anyway. <laughs> so Kate came out of the pantry the other day and dad is ever watchful. Just letting you know. My eyes are constantly looking. And Kate comes out of the pantry. As she came out of the pantry, she dropped some scissors in her purse, because my daughters think they're grown women. Anyway, so dropped her scissors in her purse to go to her room with scissors. Well, she made it one step out of the pantry, and I said, hey, Kate, can we talk? Yeah, yeah. She walks over, shuffles over, you know. She's, she's already bashful, and then she's like, no, she's guilty. She's avoiding eye contact with me right now. Anyway, I'm Shovels over. I said, what do you have in your purse? Nothing. Now I'm going to kill you. <laughs> you realize what happens now. You've lied. That means, uh, I think the Bible says we've got to stone you or something. Okay, so, so uh, I'm like, what? Nothing. I said, I watched you put scissors in your purse. You know what happened immediately? Kate started crying. She's caught, right? She starts crying. I just wanted to go cut something in my room. I said, okay, baby girl, listen. All I want you to know is that if you ask, 
I'm more than willing to give you some scissors to cut something. But if you don't ask, you're going to go in your room, and you know who's going to get those scissors? Becca, the one sharpening butcher knives for sacrifice in my living room, okay? So I said, you can't do that. Still crying, still crying. She's done everything wrong, right? And still trying to avoid the idea. When we're confronted in our sin, we tend to lie about it. We tend to, we tend to just shuffle. That's what we're trying to do. When it comes to trial, we do the same thing. We try to surround ourselves with positive people. Make sure your life is very well organized and very well planned. And declutter everything so that you don't have to stress about things. You know what happens to everybody like that? They're stressed about all that crap, right? They're just stressed about all the stuff that they've just added to their life. It's confusing. You want a stress-free life? Go fishing with Matt. Apparently it's stress-free. I'm teasing you, Matt. Um, it's, it's unbelievable, but we shift. Why I'm pointing this out is because we can't keep doing it. Difficult people, difficult children, guess what they're there for? The other James told me it's sanctification. That's right. Difficult people in your workplace, your friends, Barney, they're, they're there... They're there for your sanctification. <laughs> this is good. And I'm trying really hard not to keep going here. We'll be here for three hours. I'll talk to you in the morning. Anyway, okay, so... Somehow they muted my mic. What happened here? Anyway. Trial is important. Trial is never going to be comfortable. Discipline is never going to be comfortable. But it's important because my observation of the church at large is that the church at large, and I'm, listen, I'm not, I'm talking at large, so don't get offended by this. I'm not, I'm not thinking any of you in mind right now. Maybe later. Um, the church at large doesn't have a lot of endurance. We don't. When the going gets tough, what do we do? We book it. We see this actually in churches. When the going gets tough, we just go down the street. There's another pastor we can heap our problems on. When the going gets tough, we tend to run. We don't have endurance. When it comes to... Um, when it comes to prayer, I think about persistence in prayer. I'll be honest with you guys, I'm not good at persistent prayer. I'm just, I'm actually downright awful at it. Um, and by the way, it's not a sliding scale. I'm not better than somebody, so therefore I'm okay. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. The guy in the, that Jesus calls out, the, the tax collector that Jesus calls out, that basically says, uh, you know, thank God I'm not like that guy. That guy's a problem. So it, it doesn't work. I don't get to say, well, I pray more fervently than you do. No, no, no. I just, I'm just bad at fervent prayer. I don't have endurance. What, what would cause me, just, this is just, I'm just being candid with you and talking to you. What would cause me to have to pray and have to pray a lot for a long period of time? Trial. Give me an example of a trial. Sickness. Sickness might be that. What'd you say, Mark? Money. Money is always a trial. Right? Think about this. Maybe, just maybe, those things are there to teach you something. 
we might be able to learn how to pray better. What do we do? We pray for 13 seconds, and then we jump on Google to find the loan we need to figure it all out. You want a story of somebody who trusted God in his finances? Read the, read the biography, I guess it would be, in his case. I can't remember. Wasn't it an autobiography, too, of George Mueller? You should read the story of George Mueller. It's, it's unbelievable when you watch a guy go day by day by day waiting for God to provide. It's amazing. But he definitely learned how to persistently pray. He learned how to endure. When my family has endured sickness, we've, we've learned in those times how to endure through prayer. Too bad we, that lesson doesn't stick with us. I don't know why, but it doesn't stick with us. Um, endurance is something we need. The other observation of the church at large today is that it definitely is lacking maturity. And so when you ask people what they believe about something, their go-to now, people's go-to in the church now is, well, there's a lot of differing views on it. Tell me what you believe. And if you can't tell me what you believe, what I'm going to tell you is you haven't studied enough. You haven't learned enough. You haven't endured enough. You don't, you're not even trying. And you're sitting there thinking, well, I just Jesus will return someday. I hope this works. It's not the way, it, it's not the way this goes. Because when trial comes in that situation, the devil's going to be looking for things that you don't understand. And he's going to mess with you. The church is lacking so much understanding. We actually believe all kinds of foolish things about sexuality, about killing babies, about all. I mean, the, the world is jacked up now. Why? Because of what I just said. We don't have maturity. Why don't we have maturity? Because we didn't learn to endure. Why didn't we learn to endure? Because we hate trial. God wouldn't test me like this. Oh, he will. He has, and you're just pushing it off. You're short-circuiting your own sanctification, and I do the same thing with mine, right? So all of that brings us to maturity, and maturity says that we won't lack anything. Wouldn't it be amazing if you said, you know what, I could trust any person in my church. Think about this for a second. Wouldn't it be amazing if you said, I can trust any person in my church. If I went to them and said, here's what the deal is, and here's what's going on, they would give me wise counsel. Wouldn't that be amazing? Because you'd have a church filled with mature people who lack nothing. That'd be absolutely amazing. Guys, we need, to, we need to be okay with trial. We need to embrace it. We need to embrace it and face it with great joy. Because what God is doing in us is something that we cannot get anywhere else. We won't get a motivational speaker to build it into us. Our mama and our daddy can't build it into us. Not without the word of God. Nothing will do it. God will do it. And he does it through trial.